And this evening, um, in a moment or two, we're going to take the, the final installment in a, a sermon series that we've entitled Hashtag Relationship Goals. And we've covered some ground over recent weeks. Um, a lot of our um, scriptural references have been taken from an often overlooked book of the Bible, that is the Song of Songs, or sometimes called the Song of Solomon. And um, as it happens, we're not going to spend a great deal of time in that book this evening. Um, we did a little bit this morning. Um, please do, if you missed anything, check out the podcasts. You can catch up on, on, our, on our sermons. Um, just one particular thing to highlight with you is that next Sunday we have something totally different, but I'm, I'm convinced it's going to be absolutely remarkable. We're really privileged to be welcoming a gentleman by the name of Neil O'Boyle, and he is the National Director of British Youth for Christ, and um, he's an evangelist by his gifting. He's particularly gifted in sharing the gospel. Uh, the message of Jesus with folks. So if you know people who, who need to hear that message of the love of Jesus and the hope of a new way of life, then invite them to be. He's going to be here in the morning and in the evening, bringing different messages, morning and evening. And he's going to be talking also about how we are works in progress in our, in our journey of discipleship. I think it's going to be really, really good. And so I would urge you, if there's any other believers, um, that part of this church, you maybe haven't heard that he's coming, remind them, um, grab a hold of them, bring them along and um, encourage folks to be here. We're going to have a great time together. Um, now, uh, coming to uh, what we're going to talk about this evening. Um, we've, we've covered a great deal of ground, like I say. And, um, I, you know, as I said this morning, and I want to say it again, um, some of the things that we've talked about, not necessarily the easiest things to talk about, not things that we talk about often. Um, some of the things that we talk about uh, over this sermon series, while some of them have been, have been joy-filled and full of promise and possibility, some of them have also looked at the, the, the brokenness of our human condition, um, areas where um, we might fall into temptation, even fall into sin, and, and different things that we might wrestle with and struggle with. Um, and, and what we said this morning, and I'm going to say it again this evening, is we don't open these things, these issues, these subjects, just simply to kind of, um, kind of hit you with some scriptures and then send you on your way. Uh, my heart's desire is that we might see how we can understand the heart of God from the scriptures, but that in opening up these subjects, we might invite the grace of God to be at work in our lives. Does anybody want the grace of God to be at work in their lives? I really do. And um, I think what we recognize is that each and every one of us is in need of Jesus. Uh, so I put your other hand up for that one. Uh, we're in need of Jesus, are we not? And, um, and so if anything that we've talked about over recent weeks or anything that I'm going to talk about this evening um, maybe is difficult for you or is a, a point of pain for you, please, I, I'm not just raising these things so you can perhaps struggle and then go away. Firstly, I would point you to your transformed communities, that you need to be a part of a loving community of faith, uh, where you're meeting with folks. Sunday is great. It ain't enough. Um, you need to be meeting in a transformed community. If you're not yet part of one, do please see Ronald, who's been leading on the keys, or do see me, and we'd love to have you to be part of one. Um, also, feel free to come and chat with me, or if not me, one of the other pastors or elders of the church, and, and do receive some blessing, help, and encouragement. It may be that we're able to guide you to some good resources or support in your journey as well. Tonight, um, the, sermon, the sermon tonight is simply entitled Hashtag Relationship Goals. And whilst we're going to talk a decent bit about marriage, um, not exclusively so, and our, our, our primary thought this evening is, what is the purpose of a relationship? 
What's the point of a relationship, of any kind of relationship, I guess? Um, we've talked over this series about all sorts of relationships, uh, marital relationships, uh, romantic relationships. We've talked about parent-child relationships. We've even talked about friendships as, as, as in, in many senses, the pinnacle uh, of the human experience. And, um, and I want to ask us, what is a relationship for? These things, they come into sharp focus, particularly with reference to romantic relationships when Valentine's Day comes around again, yeah? And email inboxes and social media are flooded with reminders and prompts that we all ought to invest ourselves most fully in these um, holidays. It's not even a holiday, is it? It's just a, it's an opportunity to show love one to another. Alternatively, for the cynics in the, the room, an opportunity to spend money. Uh, I don't know which one it is. Is it, is it one that Hallmark made up? I don't know. Um, I know they were pretty keen on Mother's Day and Father's Day and, and all such things, but um, I, I, for that matter, I'm, I'm not a cynic, nor am I recommending that you should be so, but there you go. Uh, what I did come across as I was preparing to talk with you this evening um, was a suggestion for the Valentine's Day Ten Commandments. Yeah? And it's kind of a light-hearted variation on the actual Ten Commandments. I thought I'd share it with you. It may be useful to you. It may not. Um, but here you go. Um, number, one, number one commandment. Those of you familiar with the actual Ten Commandments in the Bible will see that it follows a similar kind of pattern. But number one, the first commandment is, I am thy main squeeze. I'm not, I'm not talking directly to you at this point. I just want to point that out. But, uh, you can imagine within a romantic relationship. I am thy main squeeze. Thou shalt have no other squeeze before me. Uh, you could put indeed or after me or, you know, in any way around me. Um, number two, the second commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of thy squeeze in vain, nor badmouth her behind her back. This can work her or him. You can just make it work for you. Commandment number three. Remember our anniversary and keep it holy <laughs> or else. Commandment four, honour my mother and father. Thine are just too weird. Um, commandment five, thou shalt not kill my love by behaving tackily or cause undue embarrassment when I am with thee. Commandment six, thou shalt not commit adultery, nor shalt thou even think about it, lest you be smitten from the earth. Commandment number seven, thou shalt not steal from my wallet or my purse while I am in the bath, nor shalt thy, thou use my credit cards at any point. <laughs> Commandment number eight, Thou shalt not talk about our personal problems to our friends. Commandment nine. Thou shalt not covet the higher market value of thy neighbor's house without first putting down the remote and learning how to use a paintbrush. And commandment ten. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's main squeeze, nor his son, nor his daughter, nor his BMW, nor anything else that belongs to thy neighbour. These are the Ten Commandments. Blessed be the word of the Lord. Um, it may not be the word of the Lord, but um, you know, they're very, very silly, but they kind of tap into something 
Um, whatever kind of relationships we're in, whether we're talking about, you know, uh, platonic friendships, uh, whether we're talking about, you know, parent-child relationships, whether we're talking about romantic relationships within our marriages, there's a desire, as it were, to, to, to see them flourish on, on the positive angle, to, to see them become all that they could be. Human relationships are a good, of course they are, and to positively spin them, that, that is a, a good desire. Of course, these things can turn negative, and if we're not careful, the person that we're in whatever kind of relationship with, they become something of a project. And it might be that if we are um, not understanding things appropriately, um, we start to work upon one another rather than work for one another's good. Have you heard the one about Adam and his spare rib? As you know, in the beginning, God made Adam in paradise. He was allowed to enjoy all of the wonders of the Garden of Eden and was given the job of naming all the animals. But after he had named them, he got bored. He wanted some company, someone he could talk to and possibly impress. God understood the situation perfectly. I can see that you're lonely, he said to Adam. Let me make a woman for you. What's a woman? asked Adam. Well, said God, a woman will love you and adore you. She'll cook perfect meals for you and always look nice. Bear with me on this. You're going to see where it's going in the end. A woman will cook perfect meals for you and always look nice. She'll laugh at all your jokes. And she'll never complain. Bear with me. <laughs> That's wonderful, said Adam with enthusiasm. But she sounds very expensive. What will she cost me? Ah, replied God, a woman like that will cost you an arm and a leg. To which, of course, Adam carefully considered this and said back to God, what will I get for a rib? That's terrible, isn't it? Oh, thank you. It wasn't that good, but thank you anyway. Again, daft, 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 daft. If you're wanting to get something rather good out of a relationship, if you have a goal, if you consider the relationships that God is blessing you with in your life to be something that is a, a beautiful thing and a God-given possibility and promise for your life, there's a serious question for us. Not so much what are we expecting, but what are we investing? Not so much but what are we demanding, but what are we giving? Not so much what are we picking up and, and drawing to ourselves, but rather what are we laying down and what are we giving? There's a famous section of scripture, Ephesians chapter 5, and it speaks um, very particularly into the, the marriage relationship. Um, and many people have used it appropriately. Some folks, not so much. But in Ephesians chapter 5, it speaks about the, the nature of the relationship, man and, and woman, husband and wife. Um, but there, um, I want to, to, to point out, right at the beginning of these thoughts, God actually invites us into a change of heart and a change of mind. He invites us to consider one another before ourselves, to prefer one another. And in verse 21 of chapter 5 of Ephesians, in the understanding of what we are to give thanks to God for, the scriptures teach us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
You know, the default position in any human relationship is, is, is humility. That's how it ought to be if we're to understand uh, the relationships that God grants to be what they are. Of course, that kind of humility, that kind of submission will look different in all kinds of, of relationships. I want to challenge us right at the beginning, how are we submitting to one another? We're incredibly blessed to be a part of this household of faith, this church. We're incredibly blessed. Um, again, I reference our transformed communities to be able to work out these things in communities um, with those that we can do life with to, to a greater and greater extent. Uh, we have this opportunity to figure out this truth. How might we be submitting our lives one to another? You know, to put it very plainly, what is it? You know, name the thing to yourself right now, perhaps even, or as you think about it over the week, what have you given up for somebody else recently? What has changed in your schedule, in your diary, for the preference of somebody else recently? What way have you had to, to, to trim your own wings, as it were, such that somebody else might be able to fly? You know, if we can't answer these questions, then we're fundamentally missing the heart of God. We're missing the heart of God for our relationships. Now, we, we know this is very true, for we see it in the person of Jesus Christ. And the scriptures teach us so plainly that Jesus Christ, who is in the very nature of God, he is fully and completely God, thereby not considering equality with God something to be grasped, what did he do? You know, the Bible teaches us that he made himself nothing. He took on human likeness, it's an incredible humility, an incredible clipping of the wings that God eternal, untrammeled, greater than all things, might pour himself into the frailty of a human form. The Bible teaches us not only that he took on human form, but that he served. He came not to be served, but to serve. And he served to the very lowest point, the point of death. Cruel death, certainly, but a disgraceful death, the death of a cross. And lower still, he was put into the ground, into a grave that wasn't even his own. This is the nature of our God towards us. And he invites us into the same way. He says, how are you following me? He puts it in this one way, doesn't he? He says, come on, if you must follow me, then you must take up your cross and follow me. Submit yourselves want another out of reverence for Christ. What have you given up recently? What has changed in your life? How have you chosen to sacrifice so that someone else might have? These are the kinds of questions that we need to be answering and answering readily. Don't just think, oh, I did that thing last year. I'm sure it was a good thing, but people have needed you since last year. Your husbands, your wives, they've needed you since that last time when you did that one big thing. It's not just about those big things, is it? It's about the hundreds, the thousands of little things that show that we are submitted to Christ. We revere him and so we submit one to another. If we start to get this right, then we start to see how these things might, might flow into all areas of our relational lives. Again, referring to Ephesians chapter 5, the example of wives and husbands is laid out for us. And famously, the words of Scripture from 22, verse 22 onwards are that wives should submit to your own husbands, 
not to any other husbands. Now, there's no kind of mandate whereby men automatically have some sort of authority over every woman. That's not in the Bible. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is, to the, head, is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. It's a pretty high calling, I think. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, verse 25, love your wives. Uh, at first glance, it seems like the husbands have got the easier part. Not so. For the scriptures continue. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. The scripture continues. The Bible has a very high view of the possibility of human relationships. And it has an incredibly high view of the possibility and the promise of marriage. The Bible believes and instructs and teaches and opens up this window for us that should a husband and a wife be invested in one another to this extent, the husband's not only willing to lay down their lives, should that be the case literally, but constantly and consistently laying down their lives over and over and over and over again in every which way, laying down their lives for their wives. This is not saying, oh, should I need to take a bullet for you, love? I'll do that. I mean, come on, the chance... It's not going to come around. Actually, if that is the only way that you'll lay down your life for your wife, it may be that somebody does find a gun and, uh, no, 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 that'll never happen. But uh, it's not about that. It's about how are you laying down your life all the time, all the time, giving yourself up for your wife. It's a pretty high calling, is it not? Uh, within the context of such a high calling, women, there is a high calling here also. For the, for the revealing of the Lordship of Christ in the way that you um, act within the relationship to your husband. It's nothing short of the revelation of the gospel. That's how the scriptures are couching these truths, that these things show who God is show the nature of the gospel, show the work of the cross. I don't know, for those who are married here this evening or those perhaps who aspire to be married, whether you've understood or appreciated the height of the calling that God has upon your marriage relationship. God believes it to be a wonderful thing. I know in our best moments, in our most romantic moments, maybe on Valentine's Day and other such high points. We might believe anything and everything for our romantic relationships. Do we, do we really believe that they reveal God into the world? They can do. This is the prospect. These are the hashtag relationship goals that, that, that are available. They're out there for the Christian, for the believer, should we want them. We mentioned it this morning. 
But if we really have a high view of marriage, um, then we'll want to invest in our marriages. We'll want to invest in them and value them and, and consider them to be a precious, precious thing. One of the very best things that a married couple can do is to feel the weight of the vows that they make when they do get married. They're pretty heavy things to say. I've conducted a number of, of, of marriage ceremonies as well as taking part in two for myself. Erin and I, we got married twice. I, you know, the second one wasn't necessary. It was just, you know, because the first one was in Canada and it's quite a long way away. And so we did one here as well. And on occasion, I, I, I say to Erin, would you like to get married again? And, uh, and she says, don't be daft. Um, she's much more sensible than me. Um, every time I've either had to to say those marriage vows on behalf of myself or, or to lead others in those marriage vows, you feel the weight of them. They're no small thing. Right at the beginning of the marriage ceremony, we recognize that we are in the sight of God and in an assembly. And, and the, the church, that those who are gathered, are there as witnesses to the vows that are given and received. They promise one to another until death us do part. There is the, the promise to, to love, to honor, to cherish, to honor one another with their bodies, to share everything as though there's no distinction whatsoever. These things are beautiful things, certainly they are, but they're heavy things. I don't think we, we do it ourselves if we're in a marriage relationship or, or others if we're trying to bless marriage relationships. I don't think we do any favors if we somehow pretend they're not a heavy thing. One of the very best things a married couple can do is to feel the weight of them and to, and to say in all seriousness, we're together forever. That God has a plan for us as a, as a couple going forward. God has a purpose for this particular relationship. And to actually say what we have promised means that separation for us is not an option. Now God has this high view of marriage. And so ought we to, even as we have high views for all of the relationships that God blesses us with in our lives. Now I know the obvious question uh, and it may be kind of playing in your minds already as well, but, but what about when things don't go according to plan? Well, again, I don't want us to perhaps run to, to details straight away, but rather again to affirm the high view of marriage because we want to root relationships in the God who has designed them and given them. God has designed and given marriage, for instance, to be a lifelong, faithful, committed, monogamous relationship. It's rooted in God's plan, in his design plan, actually, for humanity. In Genesis chapter 2, and we've mentioned it different times over recent weeks, but, but having received um, Eve into the world, Adam is obviously incredibly delighted and the Bible says that this man, Adam, he says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And just encapsulated in just these brief moments in Scripture, we find just an absolute and utter mingling of souls and unity of flesh. 
the height that God holds for the possibilities and the prospects of the marriage relationship, it really, it's staggering to understand. And there they both were, and you know, in, in, in the Garden of Eden, they were both literally naked, uh, but also emotionally and, and spiritually without covering or separation one between another. They were open toward one another fully and completely. This is the possibility and the prospect of a marital relationship, and they were not ashamed. Nothing had come between them. Nothing had caused there to be any shame or separation between them. God has a high view of the possibility of the relationship in a marriage. And God wants a marriage to succeed. Indeed, the Bible says on one occasion, Malachi chapter 2 and verse 16, that God hates divorce. It's strong language. We're going to unpack that a great deal. The first thing to say there is that what you may not realize is that through the prophetic words of Scripture, God himself considers himself in the Old Testament to be, as it were, a divorcee. Not by his choice, but by the unfaithfulness of his people. God considers himself as though he fully feels the sting of unfaithfulness and even the abusive nature of his people towards himself. Read the scriptures for yourself. It's, it's made very, very plain. This is the heartbeat of a God who is in love with his people. He has chosen and set apart and preserved and saved and has done wonders for and provided for. And he, he talks about them with such beautiful language. And yet time and time again, they leave him. They're unfaithful to him. They separate themselves from him. God himself is overlooked. He's mistreated. He's taken for granted. He's even cast aside in favor of another. And so when God speaks of his high calling of marriage and, and, and his hatred of the, those brokennesses of hurts and pains of, of when things go wrong and, and separation comes and even things move towards divorce, he doesn't speak in an abstract sense. This is not primarily about rules and regulations. This is about heart. It's about what God himself feels. And the hate God feels for divorce is for its pain, for its wounding, for the hurts that oftentimes lead up to it. And we would do well to note not only in Malachi that he speaks of his hatred for divorce, but also God speaks of his hatred for, for those, for, for men who do violence in particular. And we recognize right at the beginning of our, our thoughts on this subject that a divorce doesn't exist in a vacuum. But rather, there are oftentimes things that lead to these things. And God is heartbroken by them also. These things are things of tragedy. A tragedy that's not at all uncommon in the world in which we live. In fact, in, in 2019, I read that 42% of marriages ended in divorce. That's a high proportion, isn't it? If you were to add in all of the other relationships that were begun with high hopes, perhaps, maybe they thought, well, we'll be together forever, and so, so many are not. If you're not speaking solely about marriages, but thinking about all other kinds of relationships, how many parents have fallen out with their kids? How many kids have fallen out with their parents? How many friendships have ruptured and, and hurt? And each and every one of these relationship breakdowns is something that God feels most keenly. 
we must be people who long and pray and indeed work for a better way. Any kind of relationship that is a privilege to be within your life is something that is precious, but it's something that needs to be worked upon. Something that needs to be worked upon. I was really amused yesterday. We, we enjoyed the, um, the, the Christian Life and Witness training. And, um, and, and uh, it was fantastic training, and it was really, really good. If you weren't able to be a part of it here yesterday, um, then on the 29th of February, it's, it's being conducted in Jubilee Church in Wallasey, so we'd encourage you to, to get along there as well. But I was very amused. I had to stifle a little snigger, um, because as the gentleman was kind of talking about the, the training, he was talking about how we, how we uh, cultivate our relationship with God. And how there's a need there for constant communication. And he was making his point. And he said, you just can't go too long without talking to somebody. He said, think about your marriage. You might manage to go one day without talking, but you couldn't go two. And I thought, you might manage to go one day without talking. I think think it'd be all sorts of trouble. (laughs) I don't know what his marriage looks like. He's always got a very, very patient wife. Um, Either that or they're just both very, very quiet. I don't know. Um, But I thought, my goodness. The point he makes is, is true. You have to invest in relationships. I, I, w- I would suggest, um, even for those of you who are quiet, you might not want to go a single day without noticing your husband or your wife. Uh, within any kind of relationship, you want to invest in it and enable it to flourish. It's a necessity. And yet, we recognize that we live within a broken world. Sometimes in spite of best intentions, even in spite of honest and heartfelt and sacrificial investment, even sometimes in spite of a submission to another out of reverence for Christ, things aren't as we would wish them to be. The Bible is very, very plain about um, not only marriage, uh, but also about divorce. The Bible is very, very plain about sometimes the, the, the mistreatments that are carried out one to another and how these things are entirely wrong within um, God's sight. And the Bible, very simply, and I, I know I, it's a, a large subject and one that is, it's, it's not a, just something about knowledge or facts or figures. It's a matter of hearts and lives and hurts. Just to outline, sketch these things for us this evening. The Bible talks about some grounds that are appropriate, even though we have such a high view of marriage, some grounds that may be appropriate should everything else fail for a marriage to to end in divorce. Put very simply, those grounds are abuse or adultery or abandonment. It's worthwhile saying that even in such circumstances, it need not be essential for these marriages to end in divorce. I think within us all, there would be a desire for reconciliation. There'd be a desire for healing, a desire for something, uh, something that, is, that is broken to be made whole again. It's worthwhile saying at this point, and particularly with reference to some of the more abusive situations that sadly are, are all too common within marriage relationships, that safety, of course, is paramount. I don't know this evening, how, how could I? 
It may be this evening that even some folks here find themselves in abusive situations. Can I say very, very clearly that that is not God's will for your life? Under no circumstances whatsoever are you required to submit yourself to abuse, whether it be emotional abuse or spiritual abuse or physical abuse of any form. It's not appropriate, absolutely, and you need to be safe. It's first and foremost importance. Uh, you know, I say this knowing that some people may hear these words through the recording. It is of the paramount importance that safety be found first. Even if there should be healing or reconciliation down the road, it is of paramount importance that nobody be made to feel like they should uh, simply adapt to things that are horrendous or submit themselves to things that are abusive out of a false understanding of Scripture, that simply is not the case. God loves you, and he longs for your safety, for your healing and your wholeness. And that said, we long to see reconciliations of relationships. We long for things not to, to simply drift down the, the, the path of brokenness. The Bible is clear. Matthew chapter 19 um, is one of the clearest passages on the subject of divorce when Jesus, um, trying to be tripped up uh, by some religious leaders at the time, um, answers most clearly, uh, both again affirming the, the high view of marriage in the Scriptures, but also um, what God has provided for our brokenness. Jesus in Matthew 19 says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Just to pause there on those words, what the Bible does not say is that you cannot separate a marriage Rather, what the Bible says is that we should not wish to. Let not man separate. It's God's desire that this shouldn't be something that we think of lightly. He goes on to say, well, they say to him rather, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. He's referring to from God's plan in the garden, in paradise. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now here Jesus speaks to one of the biblical grounds for divorce, and that is a sexual immorality or adultery, uh, the ways in which one partner might abuse another partner by choosing another. And Jesus here allows for divorce, recognizing the brokenness of humanity and how that brokenness can even find its way into marital relationships. God is not hard towards you, but God does still affirm a high view of Scripture. Uh, obviously, when we read these uh, words, um, we hear them and we say, well, well is that it then? It seems that Jesus is saying that, that that's it. There's the only one um, form of reasonable divorce and a prospect of a new life. Well, here we need to recognize that Jesus is speaking very specifically to a legal point that has been brought up by the Pharisees. They're talking to him about Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1. And within that context, 
Jesus' prescriptive um, requirements are absolutely correct. Very clearly what Jesus is trying to do here as well is actually to affirm the place of women in a society that didn't do so. Within this society, it was perfectly possible for many men to simply divorce their wives on a whim. It wasn't possible for women. Women often found themselves in terrible circumstances whilst men could kind of do what they want. Part of what Jesus is achieving here through his um, interpretation of the law is affirming the place of women within marriage when no one else was doing it. Seems to me that this is something that is needed in many ways in our world today. I read this week of, of this, that a man in Dubai divorced his wife in 2001 by a totally new, new method. He sent her a text message on her phone. She had failed to turn up on time to cook his dinner, so he texted her saying, you're late, I divorce you. This was the third time he told her he would divorce her, and according to Islamic law, if a man tells his wife, I divorce you three times, that is all that is needed. The wife is legally divorced when she receives that third message. The woman in Dubai could not believe that she could be divorced by a text message, so she took it to the Muslim court, but the court upheld the man's right. Any Muslim man is allowed to divorce his wife in this way without needing to show that she has done anything wrong. A Muslim woman, however, is not allowed to divorce her husband at all. Does anybody agree with me that we need Jesus? And, you know, we talked about it in different contexts this morning, but we live in a world that does not prize, affirm, protect, or defend women nearly as much as it should. Does anyone agree with me? Come on, I expect the gentleman to speak the loudest at this point. We live in a world that oftentimes totally demeans, objectifies, and misuses women as though they're some sort of second-class citizen. It's not at all permissible by Scripture. And actually what Jesus is doing in his interpretation of the law here is defending women against the misuse of divorce law. It's a huge part of what he's doing here. There we have this one ground by which it is appropriate to divorce. The second area of the, the New Testament that speaks most fully into the area of divorce is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And, you know, it, it's too long for us this evening. We don't have the time to read it all. And, 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 and uh, Paul, you know, he speaks, he speaks to all sorts of different folks in all sorts of different kind of stages of life. You may know that Paul himself was a single man. And, and he, in his ministry, in his single-minded devotion to the ministry, suggested that it may well be better for folks to remain single, to devote themselves to ministry. It's also worth recognizing, is it not, that Jesus Christ, who is our total pinnacle and aspiration, was a single human being. Uh, the Bible teaches very, very plainly, doesn't it, that he was fully God and fully human, and yet for Jesus Christ to be fully human did not require him to be married. It's really, really worth affirming these things, isn't it? We recognize that it's not a necessity to be married to be fully human. I know it sounds daft when I say it, and it's like, of course it's not. Sadly, sometimes within, within our society, it seems like unless you're romantically attached, you're nothing. 
Sometimes even within the church, it can seem like unless you're married, then you're in some kind of you know, secondary status within the church. How can that possibly be so? When the guy who wrote most of the New Testament wasn't married, and the guy that the whole of the New Testament is about wasn't married either. Well, there you go. But Paul speaks about human relationships. And he, um, he, he speaks also into the marital relationship. And, and in 1 Corinthians 7, speaking into a culture whereby folks were coming to faith in Jesus Christ, but oftentimes their spouses were not. Sometimes, very sadly, those unbelieving spouses would simply abandon their newly Christian husbands or wives. And into that circumstance, Paul speaks the word of God and allows for divorce should that abandonment not be something that could be reconciled. And, and there we have this second grounds for divorce. Again, you know, Paul doesn't suggest for a moment that people ought to seek divorce should they be married to somebody who isn't a believer, nor seek divorce to somehow uh, strangely invest themselves in the, the ministry of God. And again, it's worthwhile saying that should we find ourselves in a position and we're and we're like, well, well, I've married in good faith, but I, I don't know whether it's fully according to the word of God. Clearly, God is saying to you, don't divorce. Two wrongs don't make a right. Allow for the grace of God in what you have. Trust in him. He loves you. And he's good. And he will bring about your flourishing. He absolutely will. It's a clear message of these passages of Scripture. And thirdly, and this again comes from 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 15, there is an insight here into the subject of abuse. I've said already that safety is paramount. Very sadly in times past, um, Christians, Christian leaders, even pastors have said, well, you know, Jesus talks about adultery, Paul talks about abandonment, but there's no grounds for divorce should there be an abusive relationship. I, I think that is a very narrow reading of Scripture that I don't believe to be correct. I'm very glad that a, a much wiser theologian than me by the name of Wayne Grudem has, a, has given some uh, scriptural understanding to, to what I have, uh, have believed all along. The, the verse, 1 Corinthians 7:15, reads that if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Grudem says, most commentaries assume that in such cases refers only to cases of desertion by an unbeliever. But on further examination, he realized that the phrase appears nowhere else in the Bible. He looked at 52 uses of the phrase in ancient Greek literature and found that in such cases usually does not just refer to the one scenario the writer already mentioned, but to scenarios similar to that one. Grudem says, these examples led me to conclude that in 1 Corinthians 7, the phrase, in such cases, should be understood to include similar cases that similarly destroy a marriage and concluded that abuse is such a case. I'm sorry. This evening, it's almost developed into something of a lecture, and I don't mean it to develop so, and I'm sure some of you are like, well, none of this applies to me. Could you just speed it up a little bit, Pastor Greg? I do feel that it's worthwhile unpacking the scriptures on these matters because I want you to have an understanding, not only towards what is appropriate and not appropriate within marriage, but towards God's heart. Towards God's heart. God's plans, his purposes. 
God's high view of marriage, but God's understanding of the brokenness of the world in which we live. And just finally, as we close, I want to just speak a word into, into the brokenness of our world. Because I want you to consider the relationships that you have. And again, we're not solely talking about marriages now. We're talking about our friendships, our parenting, or our relationship with our parents, sibling relationships, and relationships that we might have in the workplace or, or with neighbors. And how is it that we're investing in these relationships? And just, again, as we draw to a close, I just want to point you to a couple of women in the Bible who I think might be instructive to us. The first totally incredible woman of God um, went by the name of Abigail. It's a good name, isn't it? And um, in 1 Samuel 25, you'll find her story. She's a remarkable woman. She's described as being discerning and beautiful. Yeah, that's rather good, isn't it? And the husband that she had, Nabal, is described as being harsh and with bad manners. Um, I don't know, as I, was, as I was reading it, I was like, it sounds a bit like Erin and me. I don't know. Um, discerning and beautiful, she certainly is that. Um, hopefully I'm not harsh and with bad manners, but, you know, sometimes I'm my worst. Um, the story goes that David comes across these folks. Nabal is an incredibly wealthy man. And David, who's the king, simply out of courtesy and good manners, wants to pay his respects to him. And so he sends an offering to Nabal. But Nabal, being harsh and bad-mannered, rejects it, pooh-poohs it, sends it on its way with a, a dose of his tongue to lash King David with. Seems like a bad idea. Abigail, being wise and discerning as she is, realizes this is storing up trouble for the future. And so she uh, very discreetly goes with an offering of her own from her husband's wealth. And, um, and she goes to, to David secretly and she says, I'm so, so, I'm so terribly sorry for my husband. He didn't mean what he said. But please, can I present this offering to you, which is truly the heart of our family toward you, O king? Doesn't she sound like a good one? And she does this, and David receives it with a glad heart, and any desire to continue the animosity is diffused. Not long after this, Nabal dies. You might say, well, good riddance to bad rubbish, but uh, you know, I couldn't possibly comment. And David hears about this, knows that Abigail is now widowed, and, um, and surprise, surprise, I'm always a little cautious to refer to romantic relationships in the Old Testament because there are other reasons why we might not want to extol them. Um, however, um, David is absolutely head over heels, not just with the fact that this woman is beautiful, but with the fact that she's discerning. And, and wanting, as it were, almost to take her under his wing and to, as it were, not, not to reward her, that sounds a bit patronizing, um, but to, to cherish who she is. She, the widow, then becomes the wife of the king, a far better situation for her. I want to suggest to you that she provides to us something of an idea as to the possibility of our relational lives. How might we be not aggressive and arrogant within our marriages, but discerning and wise and gracious? How might we not store up trouble for our futures, but store up the goodness of God for our futures? She's absolutely wonderful. I would totally commend her to you in her wisdom and her grace. Uh, secondly, and, and lastly, um, and maybe the band would come back as they're going to lead us in worship as we close. I want to commend to you another woman. And this woman, she's found in, in John's Gospel in chapter 4. 
Now this woman, she's unlikely. You know, the Bible doesn't give us a description of her as it does of Abigail being discerning and beautiful. No, all we know about this lady is that she seems a little bit on the margins, a bit out of what we might expect, out of what we might expect in her circumstances. There she is collecting water in the heat of the day, and there she is on her own, not with any other gaggle of her friends. And, and as the story continues, Jesus is at the same well, and she finds herself in conversation with him. And again, this is totally out of the ordinary. Firstly, no single woman would ordinarily talk with a, with a single man who they weren't related to. In addition to this, she's a Samaritan woman who the Jews would consider to be heretical, and there ought to be no uh, contact really between them at all. Jesus was not only just a Jew, but a rabbi which ought to provide some greater level of distinction. And yet, the conversation flows. And it flows, rather appropriately initially, around the subject of water, of a desire to be refreshed. And yet, Jesus wonderfully brings the prospect to her of a true refreshment of her soul, of her life, of her prospects. And Jesus speaks the promise and possibility of relational flourishing to somebody who has only known relational brokenness. You know, he, he says to a woman, go, go and bring your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And opens up just a glimmer of a window into a deeper truth, for she'd been with a number of, of gentlemen, and now she's with somebody who wasn't her husband. And into relational brokenness, Jesus brings the promise of relational flourishing. For he continues to speak life and hope and insight to reveal to this woman that aren't really revealed to anybody else. This is one of the grand and great moments of Jesus' ministry as he tells her who he is. He reveals to this lady who you might not expect some of the things that he hasn't even revealed to his disciples who are following him through the blooming desert, for goodness sakes. And the relationships start to flourish in a way that you wouldn't expect for. Having received all this wonder and wisdom and grace of God, he then allows this lady to be the means by which the gospel of the good news of who Jesus is and the coming of his kingdom goes into her town. She, she goes back and she says to folks and I, they might not have been her friends. They might not have regarded her very well. But she says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. <laughs> so we're allowed a little bit of exaggeration when we talk about the gospel. But she goes, and somebody who had relationship, relational brokenness becomes the means of relational wholeness. Not only newly in her community, but between people and this Jesus who has revealed himself to be God to her at a well, in an out-of-the-way place. Hmm. I would urge you, think about your relationships. Think about what they may be. Think about how you can bring the grace of God, not only into your relationships, but through your relationships. How you can speak the gospel, not only into your relationships, but through them. Would you stand with me? And you may say, well, I don't even know that I've got any relationships. I don't know. You know 
I totally love the fact that in the story of Jesus, it seems like his favorite place on earth was with um, some siblings, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And we're not really told anything about any other relationships they have in their lives. And I guess we're led to believe that they're, they're single, I guess. I don't know. Um, but all of the the fullness of the possibility of the kingdom of God breaks into these lives. And God sits with them and he teaches them and he eats with them. And and you see how many times he goes back to these people. And it's not because, you know, they, they perhaps have the highest status in the world, but he loves them. The defining relationship is that that they have with Jesus. And oh goodness, he even raises one of them from the dead. That's pretty good, isn't it? What I mean is, there's no one in this room this evening who is discounted. There's no one in this room this evening that Jesus says, oh, you know, Pastor Greg, he's just talking to the married people or or, or those with romantic relationships or just to the parents or the kids or everybody, everywhere, always. For you may have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if that is the deepest treasure of your life, then everything else turns to purest joy. Let's pray. Christ Jesus, I want to pray for these wonderful folks here this evening. The hail came down, and the thunder clapped, and the lightning struck, and they still came. Oh, these are good people. I love them. And they've listened to me speak for probably far too long. And they're very gracious. Jesus, I pray that you would root each and every one of them and establish them in the relationship that they have with you. Would you do a new work in their life, Lord God? Something utterly, well, almost unutterably beautiful. And Lord Jesus Christ, I just pray a blessing upon the relationships represented here tonight. I pray a blessing upon friendships. I pray a blessing upon sibling relationships, parent-child relationships. I pray a blessing upon marriage relationships. I pray a blessing upon romantic relationships represented here this evening. I, I pray your blessing upon friendships that are to come, Lord God. I pray a blessing on them all. But here is what I pray above all and through all and for all of those other relationships. I pray a blessing upon relationships that seek to bring the grace of God and proclaim the gospel of Christ Jesus. God, let us look to this in all we have and all we do. Amen.